Well, thank you, Mountain Men. That particular song is a special request by me. I like it a whole lot. And uh, I told Tony, I said, if you get the Mountain Men to sing, have them sing that one because it's not quite Christmas yet until I've heard it. So anyway, I, I like it a whole lot. It's good to be back with you here this morning. Uh, after a little little break, I trust everybody's Thanksgiving uh, was a good celebration of all that God has given us by His grace this past year. You know, I hope you came away from Thanksgiving remembering with joy some of the great things that God has done for you, and some of the great things that God has done in you this past year. Uh, this year has been a uh, a good year in a lot of ways uh, for for most of us. And I hope that there was laughter around your table and there was rest at your house. Uh, Karen and I had a great day yesterday. We didn't do anything all day. And it was fantastic. We sat, we sat in front of the fireplace. We watched White Christmas. We went to an ugly sweater party last night. It was, it was just a relaxing day just to do nothing. And we, we don't have enough of those. Uh, but I hope you get some of that time. Uh, here as we uh, come toward Christmas. Uh, this morning we're back in the prophet Micah. And Micah prophesied, if you remember, uh, from our first week in this book, he prophesied during the reigns of King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah, uh, three of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And since their reigns lasted for about 63 years collectively, uh, this little book probably does not contain all that Micah preached. Uh, you know, he preached a long time to preach during the reigns of all three of these kings. And so this is probably not everything he ever had to say over a 63-year period. Uh, just like the Gospels don't contain everything that Jesus said and did and every detail about Jesus' life, they contain enough detail that God sought to preserve for us that we would know about Jesus and who he is and what he did and how he is his coming as the fulfillment of prophecy. But it doesn't contain everything we might like to know. But what God did sovereignly choose to have included for us uh, as Scripture are three of Micah's oracles. And an oracle is essentially a message from God through the prophet uh, delivered in the form of a sermon. Uh, that Micah would have spoken at various points in his ministry. Now, the first oracle we looked at uh, in the first two weeks we were together on this book, uh, the first oracle is chapters 1 and 2. And here this morning, we're going to start into the second one that goes uh, from chapter 3 through chapter 5, and then in a few weeks, we'll be up to the third one in chapter 6 and 7. Uh, and I think I told you this before, but... When you look at prophetic oracles, one of the things that you see, got to get a little closer to y'all, uh, one of the things that you see at the beginning, especially of a prophetic oracle, is God announcing judgment. And if you'll remember, it starts, the prophets all follow a similar pattern. You start out with judgment, 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 a little bit of hope. And then judgment and a little more hope, right? And what you see at the end of his first oracle is a little bit of hope that's been injected into the discussion. But 
in chapter 4 and chapter 5, you're going to get a lot of hope. So if this week is discouraging to you because it's all about judgment, hang in there. Uh, Chapter 4 and chapter 5 get a lot more hopeful as they talk about the restoration of the people to the land and about the coming of the Messiah. You get this magnificent section on the coming of Messiah and what he's going to do and where he's going to be from and how he's going to rule and reign and what's going to happen to all the nations all over the whole world because of the coming of the king. So That's going to set us up perfectly for Christmas. That the Messiah is coming. And, and it identifies where he's going to be born, what he's going to do. And it's an exciting section. So if this section is discouraging, take comfort. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are coming. Uh, but, and the other thing you'll notice is that is that prophetic oracles tend to be sort of repetitive on the themes that they address. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Because one thing that I know from the scriptures is that God repeats himself a lot. More than once, he tells us how to live in a way that not only honors him, but blesses us. Amen? And he tells us on the same issues repeatedly in various books all over the scriptures. And in the same book, over and over and over and over, he tells us things. Why? For the same reason you tell your kids the same thing over and over and over and over. And, you know, you sound like an idiot at points, right? And Because you, you say things like, how many times have I told you? And they're like, I don't know. You know and you're like, how many times do I have to tell you, put away your socks? You know, I don't know. You know, and, um, you know, you, and you go, I've told you, that if I've told you once, I've told you 500,000 times, right? And why do we repeat ourselves as parents? Because our kids are slow to listen and slow to hear. They have selective hearing. They have the ability to tune us out, right? They know that, that you're going to say it again, right? And, and sometimes, you know, we, we, um, we're like Bill Cosby, you know, we're, we repeat stuff like, come here, 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 here. You know, you're like you're talking to the dog or something. You know, you're trying to get him to, to do what you want. And you repeat yourself. Right? God does the same thing for the same reason. That many times, because we are sinners, we are slow to listen. And we are slow to hear what God is trying to say to us. And so he tells us the same thing in different ways over and over and over again so that we will get it, hopefully. Because the idea of the prophets announcing judgment, by the way, is not to present God as some sort of cosmic ogre who is out to squash everybody. That is not the reason that those announcements of judgment are made. It's so that God's people will hear that and take warning and go, oh, the way I'm going does not lead the direction to a destination I want to arrive at. And so I'm going to turn around. I'm going to repent so that God not only will not judge me, but so that I will turn back to my relationship with God and be restored and be healed and be um, back in in a relationship with God that leads to blessing and not to judgment. 
the point of an oracle of judgment is not God hates you and he's going to whack you. That's not what it's about. It's that God loves you and discipline is coming. It's the same thing as with your children. Remember, what do you say? If you do that, this will be the consequence. If you continue down the road you're on, there will be consequences, and this is what they will be. And when you're talking about a nation, obviously the consequences are much different than when you're talking about your kid. You know, if you don't come home by curfew, the next time you want to go out, you will have to stay home, right? That's the consequence. Um, when you're talking about a nation, though, the consequences are much wider and much more severe. And God is saying consequences are coming unless you repent. The implied um, statement being made is repent, otherwise these consequences will fall. So with all that as background, if you've got your Bible there, um, we're going to be at Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at the whole chapter. This is, what, this is what the Lord says through Micah. And I said, hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people, who eat their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them? And break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deed evil. Now, Micah, I've said this before, but Micah signals us every time he's beginning a new sermon, a new message, with this little word here, the word Shema. And it's a significant word because it's a covenant word. It's, a, it's the word that begins Israel's confession of faith. The fundamental confession of faith, if you're, a, if you're an Israelite, is this. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God, and it's the Lord, Yahweh, who is God. That's their basic confession. And so Micah, by using that word, hear, he is drawing their attention back to the covenant. Remember, you're to listen to the God who is speaking to you, who has established covenant with you, and who calls you to hear what he has to say. And he is signaling them that, hey, I'm going to call you back to the covenant that you are violating. And what his problem is, is that these leaders of the nation are engaged in tyranny. According to God's covenant, virtually the sole responsibility of a leader of a nation, of the nation of Israel, is to administer justice and ensure that justice is done. So they are to punish evil, and they are to enforce the law, and they are to protect the weak from those who would take advantage of them. And so typically, uh, leaders were always thought of and even called in the scripture shepherds of my people. In fact, there's a long section in Ezekiel that I read this week about where God is talking about the shepherds of his people and how they have failed to shepherd flocks 
of the nation. And of course, David you know, looks to the Lord in Psalm 23 and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And the idea is, is that these guys, these folks who were leading the nation were to take care of the flock like a shepherd takes care of sheep. And so Micah asks them a very straightforward rhetorical question. Is it not for you to know justice? And the point is, of course it is. That's your responsibility. Your job is to enforce the law, to protect those who are weak, to make sure that justice is done and evil is punished. But instead of acting like shepherds, they've taken on a new role. They found a new role for themselves called butcher. And he uses very graphic terms. Instead of hating evil and loving good, they do the opposite. They hate what is good and do what is evil. They've treated the people like lambs for slaughter. I've done this. In fact, I did this over Thanksgiving weekend. My dad raised a sheep. He had one that broke its leg and couldn't get the leg to heal. And so we took it out into the garage killed it and hung it up and cut it up and put it in packages in the freezer. Now, if you've never done that, that's a fairly startling process. You are not, in a sense, taking care of that sheep. You are making dinner out of it. And that's what, and that is what Micah says these leaders are doing. That you are looking to the people of the nation, not as people whom your job is to protect, but as people who are there to satisfy your desires and to, um, for the satisfaction of your own appetite. And so he uses these verbs that are graphically predatory. He talks about eating and tearing and flaying and breaking and chopping. Because you're treating my people like so much stew meat. But God loves justice. He says, I'm going to see justice done. And one day disaster is going to befall you. And when it does, he says, verse 4, then they, that is these leaders, will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. In other words, the same thing is going to happen to you, which you are doing. That they are going that people just as people cry out to you for justice to be done, you're going to cry out to God for for some kind of deliverance from your circumstances, and guess what? It isn't going to come. When you cry out, if you're a wicked person to the Lord, he says, I'm going to sit on my hand and allow the consequences of your actions. Because God loves justice. And he says, you will endure my punishment for evil. Now, I want to just apply this for just a second. In the last few years in our country, I don't know if you're paying attention or not, but we have seen some examples of this kind of stuff happen. Back in 2008, we had this gigantic mortgage crisis. And you know that the same people 
who were largely responsible for bringing it about in the first place were the same people who got the laws that supposedly fixed it. That the same people who benefited from some of these mortgage companies uh, were congressmen on the committee that wrote the laws. When the guys on Wall Street that made the mess, um, made their gigantic mess, they got bailed out by taxpayers who were the victims. So if you were a taxpayer and you got, you, your house lost value as a result of these guys and what they were up to, you got to pay for it twice. And we now in our country have one kind of law for those who are politically connected and another kind for those who are not. If you're part of the common run of folks, well, you have to obey the law. But if you're connected to some of the politically favored groups, you don't have to obey the law. You know what the word for that is? Injustice. What do you think God thinks about that? I submit to you he thinks the same thing about that. About, he thinks the same thing about taking advantage of poor or poorer people when you're in a position of leadership or authority or power. He thinks the same thing about that as he does these guys in Micah. And just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Things are not simply wrong if they're illegal. Many times they're illegal because they're wrong. And many things that are not illegal are still wrong. And if you find yourself in a position of authority and leadership and power, let me just go on record right here and say this. That if you treat the people who are under you like so much meat for the pot, like so much of a commodity to be used for the satisfaction of your appetites, that justice will come for you just as surely as it did for these God does not always perform his accounting on the 30th of the month or at the end of the year. But justice does come. We live in a just universe under the reign of a just God. And the reality of it is, is that God will see justice done. Might wait, it will come. And so if you're in positions of authority and leadership and power, be aware, you will give account to the Lord one day. Now, let's go on. Enough of that. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, who declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouth. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. 
Now, this is Micah's second statement against these phony prophets. In chapter 2, he tells the nation, look, the right prophet for you all is the guy who prophesies free beer and good wine yet to come. The guy who tells you that prosperity is all that's ever going to be and that life is always going to be good and you're always going to eat high on the hog. He says, that's the right prophet for you all. But these guys are phonies. They're charlatans. They not only fail to preach about God's justice and how God expects righteousness of his people, they also shape their messages according to who pays the bill. Look at, look at these verses here. Verse 5, it says, when they have something to eat. In other words, if a guy uh, buys Omaha steak for them, then they give that guy a good message. And if a guy doesn't buy them off, well then, oh, war is coming for you, pal. And they shape their message according to who is paying the bill. They're prophets who were explicitly for sale. They are prostituting their particular prophetic gift that they might benefit materially from it. They, he, they're a prophet who simply tells people what they want to hear for money. And, he's, and they go around saying, all is well. God won't bring justice. God won't send us into exile. Follow me and pay my bills and all is good. But God loves justice. He loves the person who speaks what he says even when it is not popular. Amen? He loves the person who speaks on God's behalf and speaks God's word when it brings no benefit or even results in suffering and death who nevertheless refuses to back down from speaking God's word. He loves men like Martin Luther who said, Here I stand and do no less. He loves men like Justin Martyr who said, I have not all of my life been denied by the Savior. How can I deny He loves those kind of men. Men like Isaiah who was sawed in half rather than stop preaching. They can't be bought. Who don't shape their message to the winds of the culture. And he says, look, these prophets were there to speak warning. And God's people might hate them. But the reality of it is, is that the job of the prophet was to warn God's people that they might repent and that disaster might not come. Not that they would tell them, all is well. Continue down the road you're going. Nothing bad will ever happen. Because after all, God's presence is among us and it won't be a big deal. These guys are godless like Esau. Remember him? Hebrews says, Make sure that none of you is godless like Esau, who for a mess of stew sold his birthright. And that's what these guys have done. They have traded their prophetic gift for somebody to feed them. And God says about these guys, your vision is going to go dark. And there's a series of word plays here in the text about light and darkness and and 
seeing and not being able to see, but they all point to the same reality, that the phony prophets are not going to have any more word from the Lord. Those who claim to speak for God are all of a sudden going to have nothing to say. Why? Because contrary to all they have been saying and preaching to people, God is going to depart from Jerusalem and the city is going to fall. And when it falls, all these guys who have been saying, all is well, nothing bad is ever going to happen to the city, are all going to be humiliated and embarrassed when it falls. And no one will listen to them ever again. Because if you were wrong about something that fundamental, you obviously don't have a line from the Lord on what is going to happen. They'll be publicly shamed as the phonies they are. And, and verse 8, Micah gives kind of a parenthetical aside, talking about himself, and he says, but as for me, I'm filled with power and with the Spirit of the Lord. And when all these other people have nothing to say, he's going to have a lot to say. He's going to be able to say, not just, I told you so, but now is the time to repent and turn back to the Lord. How is the time? And don't miss the point. Don't miss the point in this. Which is more compassionate? Let me just ask you. Let's say that you knew that somebody was running, uh, was going 100 miles an hour toward a, a sheer cliff, that the bridge is out, and they're going to go off the edge like Wiley Coyote. Okay? And splat at the bottom. Which is more compassionate? To say to the person, oh, it looks like fun. Stick the pedal a little further to the floor. I think you got another six mile an hour you can get. Or to say, hey, stop! The bridge is out and you will die. Destruction is coming at the end of this road. Which is more loving? Which is more compassionate? It's warning people against the evil that they're going to experience as a result of their sin. That's what compassion and mercy and grace looks like. That's why God sent all these prophets to his nation to say, hey, that way does not lead to life. It leads to death. The road you're going 100 miles an hour with your hair on fire is going to lead to you splatting at the bottom. Turn around. Repent. Turn back from your sin. Come back to me as Lord. Come back to me and worship me and be restored to me and I will restore and bless and rebuild. But if you continue down the road you're going, it's going to lead to your destruction. Here's the thing about this. In our day, we live in a culture where we no longer believe in things called objective truth where we no longer believe in moral standards that transcend the individual. We no longer believe that it is compassionate and gracious to tell people that the decisions that they're making and the choices that they have lead to their own destruction. But here's the reality. God has given us his word to tell us precisely those 
that, the, that not every road leads toward him, not every road leads to blessing, not every choice is something that God approves and that will result in your health and life and healing and, and redemption. In fact, many choices and many roads lead to destruction and death. And it is not lacking in compassion to say so. Even when it is not popular. Even when it will not result in your social approval or invitations to lots of nice parties. Or when it will in fact result in your exclusion from polite society and being regarded and treated as a bigot, nasty person. But the reality of it is, is that God says this is in the Old Testament. He said, I have set before you life and death, so choose life. Because God knows where these roads lead. So he warns us away from the lead to our destruction. And don't be deceived. Sin is fun for a while, but it always destroys whatever it is. Always. The old Puritans talk about it like the bait on a hook. I love to fish. Actually, I like to catch fish. I don't like to fish. Uh, I like to catch fish, and then I like to eat them. Um, but, you know, when you put a, a, I like to fish with crickets, you know, for bluegills off a dock or something, you know. And, you know, when that bluegill bites that cricket, he thinks, yum, this is tasty. And then the hook is set, reeled in. And sin is just like that. Might not be a cricket. Might be something a little more yummy than that. Um, but it feels really good initially. And then it destroys your life. And that's why God sent the prophets. That's why God gives us his word. Is to tell us this is where he, he's, he's. And this is, the, this is my job as a pastor is to be the blind beggar telling the other blind beggars where the food is. <laughs> okay? It's to, it's to say, this is, where there's, this is where there's warmth and safety and life and food. This is, this is the road that leads to God. And these are the roads that don't. And God is a God of justice. Those who will not proclaim that God is a God who judges evil. God is a God who punishes sin and rebellion. Are those who have nothing to say, life gets very difficult. You've got to tell people the truth. Last thing here, verses 9 through 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests cheats for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. 
And this last section is God's shot across the bow to both government and religious leaders in the nation. He denounces them, he says, because you take what is straight, the things that are good, the things that are going in the right way, and you make them crooked. You hate justice, and you bend whatever you can to suit your purposes. You always are trying to tilt the table your way. These government officials are building up the city at the cost of the lives of people they lead. And they are filling the city with evil, and everybody is on the take. Court cases are decided by who slipped the judge some money. Priests don't minister as servants of the Lord, but simply for the paycheck. Prophets prostitute their gifts to the highest bidder. And even while all this is going on, they are still claiming to speak for God and still wrapping his name into it and saying, well, God will surely never bring judgment on Judah because, I mean, hey, we have the temple here. And after all, you know, I mean, you can see God's presence in the glory cloud over the temple, so surely judgment will never fall on us. And because of all these things that they're doing, God holds these guys responsible for the judgment that's coming. If you're a leader, then you're responsible for what happens. Wow, what you encourage, what you mandate, it's all your responsibility. And the city is going to be destroyed as it was. It was leveled. And it became for 70 years a dwelling place of wild animals. And trees grew up on the Temple Mount, and God's presence among them departed. And it did not return, even though the temple was eventually built. But God's presence, because God's presence among them meant they needed to obey his covenant, not that they could safely ignore it. And again, here's the point. God loves justice, and so he allows injustice only so long before he steps in. Let me give you a historical example. Uh, some of you remember, may remember from school Lincoln's second inaugural address. Great speech. 701 words long. Yet one of the greatest speeches that has ever been given. One line in particular stands out. This is what he says. This is 18... 65. He writes these words, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, Lincoln was not a prophet, but he did understand about how God worked and about how his justice worked. You know that at least one million men, women, and children perished in the transatlantic slave trade coming from Africa to the United States of America. The war produced 600,000 deaths. 
over a million wounded. In fact, many of them seriously maimed and crippled for the rest of their lives. And on top of that, it is a historical fact, I don't know if you know this or not, that virtually every dime ever made slavery was destroyed by the Civil War. It was not until 1950 that the GDP of the southern states that formed the Confederacy recovered to their poor level. Nearly a hundred years passed before their economy was back to where it was and the amount of wealth that was obliterated by that war brought back to, to the same standard. And God in his justice stamped out of that evil. Amen? God is still God of justice. And God still brings justice. And he brings it so that evil that was formerly thinkable, something you could formerly imagine and even defend, now no one God loves justice. Will only allow evil to persist so long before he brings it. So he warns his people. Turn to him so that he might bring justice down on those who do evil but might bless and protect those who seek what is good and right. The choice is clear. Lord, we're going to obey Him. We're going to walk in covenant relationship with Him. Please, whatever it is. Crooked. Violent. Pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would hate sin, that we would flee from evil, that we would love what is true that we would love you, that we would love your covenant with us, established through the blood of your Son, and that we would cling to these things. That in the midst of an evil nation in an evil day, that we would shine like stars in the midst of a corrupt, perverse people. That light of the gospel might go forth from us, from our mouth, from our life, our church. And that redemption might come upon our people. Pray. In the